This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this uh, Saturday morning here in the fall for what is our 65th consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And we continue to get so many questions, and there's so many changing thoughts about this pandemic and how we approach it. We're going to be talking today about boosters, vaccines for children. And I'm going to be taking all of your questions. As I've said, and what has become quite popular uh, among our listeners is being able to send me your questions rather than call in live Uh, Send your questions. I'll answer them live on the air if time permits. Otherwise, get to them during the week. The way to get me your questions is just send them over to info at alessimd.com. And you can start sending them over now. And if we have time, we will get to them. And otherwise, I will catch up with them. And I'll be doing that a little bit later. We had some excellent questions in our last program. And I want to catch up with folks who had those questions for us. Uh, You're also free to send your comments. One of the reasons we do this is we have a limited amount of time to get a lot of information in, so I really don't have time for people to get on the air and provide commentary. So uh, this seems to be working out for everyone. As you all know, this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and I like to keep on top of this topic because over 42,000 deaths will occur in the United States this year from breast cancer alone. And among those, approximately 500 are men. So my guest today is going to be Dr. Nia Mae Wilson. Dr. Wilson is the Associate Director of the Breast Program at Hartford Healthcare Cancer Institute. And she has been a guest on our program before and has so much good information for us. So we're going to be chatting with her in the second half of the program about a lot of the changes going on in our approach to breast cancer. Uh, We all have heard a lot about receptors and how they classify breast tumors. Uh, How has that changed? What does that mean when we hear uh, HER2 and H negative? We want to find that out. And also get the latest information on self-examination for women and when to get a mammogram. The statistics we're facing in COVID-19 continue to be somewhat relentless. Uh, We have over 735,000 Americans dead since the onset of this pandemic 18 months ago. The death rate, the positivity rate, my correction, positivity rate in the United States rose suddenly in the last week. We were down to around 5%. It went up to 10.4%. Thankfully, Here in Connecticut, our positivity rate is down to 1.79%. And that's key. Why is our positivity rate so low? Well, the reason is because 
many of you, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, have gone out and gotten vaccinated. In fact, have gone out and gotten their booster shots, much like myself and my family, for those of us who qualify. So it's clear that this positivity rate, the death rate, the hospitalization rate, have gone down with vaccination. That's science. That's fact. And that's the way we need to proceed if we're ever going to get out of this mess. Now, with that lower rate of positivity, we have seen several communities change their mask mandates. Uh, we now, as of yesterday, in West Hartford, Bloomfield, Simsbury, uh, now have relaxed their indoor mask restrictions. That's an interesting move from the standpoint that although the positivity rate has dipped, it's going to go up when we start hitting flu season and when we start seeing more viruses and we start seeing more gatherings. So I have to be honest with you. My, my opinion is this is premature, and we've learned this last time. Remember when we did this before? We relaxed, and then we had this January surge. So maybe we're not paying attention. And I have to say that I think a lot of this relaxing of the mask mandate indoors is out of financial and economic concern for restaurants and stores and, and things such as that. I will continue to wear my mask. And let me explain why. There's this mistaken thought that by wearing a surgical mask, you're protecting yourself. You are not. The mask is there for you to protect other people so that the germs coming from your mouth and nose aren't spread. Perfect example, surgeons, right? Surgeons wear a mask when they're operating so that their germs from their nose and mouth don't go into a wound. It doesn't protect them from others. That's why everybody wears a mask. If you wear a mask, the germs have nowhere to go. So by wearing a mask, you are once again demonstrating good citizenship and courtesy to others. It's like covering your mouth when you, when you sneeze. So as much as people start saying this is some restriction, they're handcuffing me or whatever this has been taken as, the mask is a courtesy. And please remember that if you are in a healthcare facility, if you are at Hartford Hospital or St. Francis or UConn or any doctor's office, there's a mask mandate. You have to be wearing a proper mask to go in there. So it's not relaxed there. It hasn't been relaxed in schools. Why? Because children are not vaccinated yet. They are our most vulnerable population right now as a large group. So with that, you continue to have to mask these children. And you know what? They don't mind it that much. Their parents mind it more than they do. I know that. I have five grandchildren. All of them have to wear masks now. All of them are over the age of two. They kind of like it. 
in many respects. So all this unmask our kids is ridiculous. Because you know what kids aren't happy? The children who have to be intubated and sit in a hospital in isolation. Those are unhappy children. So we're going to talk more about those vaccines. Actually, let's get on it right now. In pediatrics, age 5 to 11, the recent study showed 2,000 subjects. Of the 2,000 subjects, half got a real vaccination against COVID-19, the Pfizer vaccine, and the other half got a placebo, fake vaccine. Of those groups, of the, of the children age 5 to 11 who were vaccinated, only three contracted COVID. Of those who got placebo, 16 were infected with COVID. So we know that there's over 90% protection. Is it 100%? No. It's not going to be until we get to herd immunity, until more people step up and become good citizens and try to protect our children and those who cannot be vaccinated, people who have cancer, people who are on chemotherapy. We need to step up and do that. The pediatric dose is going to be distributed in a different way here in Connecticut. It's going to be distributed through a pediatric office. Children have pediatricians, and that's the best way to vaccinate this population. It'll be a two-dose vaccine for children, and it'll be administered three weeks apart. It will still take two weeks after the second vaccine for them to become fully vaccinated. So, fingers crossed that we're able to do this in an expedited fashion so that by Christmas, when everybody wants to get on a plane and everybody wants to get together and have all these children together with no masks in their home, these children will be fully vaccinated. And it goes back to the theory, uh, don't do as I say, do as I do. My grandchildren will all be vaccinated ASAP. If we could be first in line, we will. Because that's how important this is. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back uh, where I'm going to answer some more of your questions that have come in over the course of the past week. And uh, we're going to touch on uh, some more interesting topics about autoimmune disease. We're going to talk a little bit about um, the Kaiser study on people who have been vaccinated and how this makes a difference. Again, if you have questions you want to get into us, you can reach me at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. This morning, 11 till noon on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds. And I wanted to get to some questions that have uh, come in and popped up over the course of the last couple of weeks. Uh, at the time of our last show, we had a, uh, a message from Will who said, regarding the CDC guideline, COVID-19 vaccine booster shots are available from Pfizer, uh, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine recipients who completed their initial series at least six months ago. Does the six-month period start with the date of the second shot, or is it necessary to wait the additional three weeks to be fully vaccinated? 
And in that case, it is six months from when you got the last shot. So that is the calculation. It's not from when you became fully vaccinated. So an important question for people to uh, keep in mind. And with respect to the booster shots, since we're on the topic, we've learned a lot in the last week. So uh, especially with respect to Johnson & Johnson. So as you may recall, Johnson & Johnson, that vaccine is not a messenger RNA vaccine. Johnson & Johnson uses a virus, a fake virus vector to attack the COVID-19 spike protein and create immunity. So it works in a different way, in a more traditional way uh, than mRNA. But with the J&J vaccine, it is now felt that although it was touted and has been very useful and effective as a one-shot vaccine, that for it to reach maximum efficiency and protection, a second shot should be given within two months of the first injection. So the one-and-done theory is not holding up. But what's interesting is they looked at people who got the J&J &J vaccine and then got a messenger RNA vaccine, the so-called mix-and-match. So they either got the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine after the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, after a period of time of several months. And those patients reached even higher levels of protection in terms of their antibody titers. So what should you do? Should you stick with the same brand or should you mix and match? My opinion is if you got the J&J &J vaccine, you should be looking to get a messenger RNA vaccine next to really get good coverage and a wider range of coverage. If you've gotten Moderna or Pfizer, a messenger RNA vaccine, I don't see the need to try and mix and match with a Johnson & Johnson vaccine to go back to a more traditional approach to vaccination. It won't hurt you. But from what I'm reading and what I'm following and listening to, it makes more sense to go from J&J &J to mix and match as opposed to vice versa. So I think that the boosters are presenting uh, very interesting data, and we're getting more and more data about them. Uh, one of the questions came in, are boosters really working in the world? And again, interesting, because things are controversial about boosters, right? Because there are a lot of people out there saying, why are people in America and wealthy industrialized countries getting boosters when other people haven't gotten them in the world? And that's a philosophical issue that I'm not even going to begin to start tackling here. I will tell you that what we know is early data from Israel. Much of the information we're getting about the vaccine, about this disease, comes from Israel. Why? Because 
Israel was the first country to really aggressively vaccinate their citizens. They made a deal with Pfizer that they would exclusively use the Pfizer vaccine and would allow Pfizer to cooperate with the Israeli government to follow these patients. So we are getting phenomenal data. It's also interesting to see that countries that are used to being threatened and under attack clamor for a vaccine. So it's very interesting. But their data um, coming out of Israel really indicate that the boosters have helped curb not only transmission but severe illness. Um, in their study, they had 48% to 68% lower risk of infection a week to 13 days after getting the booster compared to those who got the standard two-dose regimen. So that booster shot is really providing extra protection. Who needs the extra protection? Well, in this country, it's people over the age of 65. It is healthcare workers. It is people who are around potential patients who have COVID-19, people working in close quarters. I always think of prisons and places such as this. So first responders, again, are going to be out there coming into the homes of people who are quite ill and may have COVID. These are the people who need to be vaccinated and get booster shots. Why is the Delta variant so challenging? And now we're talking about a new sub-Delta variant. These variants are challenging because they replicate faster in the nasal cavity than the previous strains, like the alpha strain. So with that, they replicate and become more contagious and more transmissible over time. And with that, they affect more and more people. Are there any other ways of improving protection? Because this isn't going to be, we talked about this at our last show. This isn't going to be the last time we're dealing with a pandemic. We had a plan in 2004. Someone had the foresight to say, let's create a, a government strategy, an all-of-government strategy for pandemics. How will we identify emerging pandemics, emerging viruses, and how will we protect ourselves against those viruses? Unfortunately, due to money, that all got scrapped. But one of the things being discussed and, and really produced is new vaccines. So everybody says, well, messenger RNA is new. There are newer ones. These new vaccines are variant-targeting inoculations that are in development that may improve protection. So they're studying whether combinations of vaccine types and longer intervals between doses can yield a higher immune response. So basically, creating a vaccine on the run while you're calling an audible, audible if you're a football fan. So identify the virus, 
create a vaccine off of a newer chassis. As we've said, messenger RNA is the chassis for which you can produce other vaccines, including those to fight cancer. Which brings us to our next topic. Uh, my guest, who will be joining us shortly, is Dr. Nia Mae Wilson. She is the Associate Director of the Breast Program at Hartford Healthcare Cancer Institute. And as always, uh, we will be chatting with her about breast cancer awareness. If you have questions, you can get them in at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. This morning, 11 till noon on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome back to the second half of our program today. As mentioned, you're listening to Healthy Rounds, and my guest in this half of the program is Dr. Nia Mae Wilson. Dr. Wilson is the Associate Director of the Breast Cancer Program and Breast Program in general at the Hartford Healthcare Cancer Institute. She is a specialist in breast cancer and breast surgery. She has been a guest of ours before and always brings great information for all of our listeners. Niamh, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Tony. So let's chat a little bit. Breast cancer statistics. Where are we going in terms of the approach to breast cancer? I said at the beginning of the show there about we could expect about 42,000 deaths in this country from breast cancer in this year. That seems like a staggering number. Um, what's going on with that number? Is it going up, down? Is it accurate? Um, unfortunately, it is accurate, um, but uh, it generally has been going slightly down over time. Um, there's a lot of statistics around breast cancer, so we'll kind of set the stage there. Um, about 282,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, um, and another 50,000 will be diagnosed with a pre-invasive uh, breast cancer called in situ. So um, it's, it is very common, um, but most of those women will um, do absolutely fine, and so um, it, it is very treatable for the vast majority of women, but um, unfortunately, it is still uh, the second highest, um, the, the second most common cause of cancer death for women. The first is lung cancer, but the second is breast cancer. So it, it is still very, very important to, you know, initiate screening, see your doctor, get your mammograms on time, all of that, um, in order to help drive that number uh, lower. Niamh, have we seen any variation with COVID in the sense that uh, there was an uptick in deaths or delayed diagnoses because women were not going to the hospital to get their mammograms or investigating a mass? Absolutely. Um, we saw a very big drop-off in terms of women coming in for their mammograms because not only were some of the offices closed just in, you know, around the country but also here in Connecticut, um, but women didn't want to come in. They were afraid to, you know, enter into a health care facility. Now, of course, those breast cancers didn't, you know, go away. Uh, a lot of those women just didn't know about them at that time. And so once the mammogram, uh, the, the mammogram suites became open again, we saw a huge influx in new cases, um, almost double what we were seeing in the previous months because now all of those women were coming back in. And so... 
there was a major delay for some women in getting seen and getting evaluated and treated because of COVID. Now, of course, there's nothing we could have really done about that, but um, but absolutely it did cause uh, a delay in some women, uh, you know, coming in and getting treated. When you said there's been a slight downward trend towards uh, deaths from breast cancer, why is that? Is it because of diagnostics? Is it because of women becoming more aware of the diagnosis? Uh, why are we seeing a a trend in the right direction? That's a great question. Um, so it's a couple of reasons. Um, absolutely, there has been a really big push for increased uh, screening with mammograms and early detection. Uh, you know, everybody kind of knows that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which we are currently in. And, um, you know, a lot of the hospitals and radiology programs will really make a big push to get the word out. And um, friends and family who you may know have breast cancer will also really be trying to get the word out. So increased testing and uh, early detection, it actually does improve the overall mortality for breast cancer by about 20% if you can get screened early and catch cancers early. So that is why we push mammograms so hard. Uh, but also, you know, the treatment advances um, are improving on an annual basis. Um, so, you know, we have more targeted therapies, more immune therapies that are available. Um, we're not giving as many people chemotherapy because of other genetic advances that we're learning about cancer. So in general, the, it's not just the screening, but our treatment um, advances have really made cancer more curable. Can we talk a little bit more about the treatment? Because you mentioned something very interesting just now in terms of shying away from the more traditional cancer treatments that we we typically associate with these horrific side effects. Um, so uh, in what way has that played in? And especially if you could touch on the topic of receptors and how that steers your approach to breast cancer. Sure. So receptors are um, uh, part of the, the pathologic finding on a breast cancer. When we have, get a biopsy back that has a, uh, that's uh, showing a breast cancer, the pathologists need to do a little more testing, and what they can tell us after this testing is whether or not a cancer is sensitive to estrogen and progesterone. And there's a third protein that we look at called HER2-NU. And depending on if the cancer is sensitive to those three things, that gives us, the doctors, a huge amount of prognostic information, so it helps us figure out what their prognosis is, but also their treatment options. So, for example, if a cancer is estrogen positive, what that means is that the cancer cells have a receptor on the surface of the cell that essentially feeds on estrogen. And so as part of the treatment for that kind of cancer, the woman will get a medication that blocks that receptor, and that's something like tamoxifen or arimidex. These are medications that some people might have heard of. Um, and so that's a way that we target the therapy for that type of cancer. So it's, it's really important that we check those because um, the, the treatment options will change depending on what those receptors are. And then, as I said before, if the, um, once we know the, what those receptors are, we can also tell a little bit about prognosis. So if somebody has, all, has estrogen and progesterone receptors on their cancer and the HER2-new is negative, that usually indicates a fairly um, good-behaving tumor. It's a, you know, a better prognosis. 
as compared to if they're all negative, that's called a triple negative breast cancer, they don't have receptors on uh, the surface of the cell for us to target individual, uh, individually, those patients usually have, unfortunately, a worse prognosis, and often we have to give chemotherapy because that's sort of the only treatment option that we have. Before we take a break, I, I want to touch on one topic that keeps coming up, and I hear this from women, and it's always about the painful breast mass from the standpoint that there is this, I don't know if it's an old wives' tale or an old belief that if a breast mass is painful, it's not cancer. Um, can you please clarify that once again for everyone? Sure. Um, generally, so this is a general statement that most breast cancers are painless, meaning a lump is there, but you don't have any symptoms. There's no pain. There's no tenderness. There's no other symptoms going on at all. And so the only thing that you feel is a lump with your hand. That is not true for every single woman who with breast cancer. There are absolutely some women who come in with a vague pain, a vague discomfort, a twinge, something's going on, an itch, um, something, you know, that kind of drives um, the, the patient to, to seek treatment. And so if somebody has a painful lump, you cannot assume that it's going to be benign, that, that somebody has to be evaluated for that. And if you have that going on, you just you bring it to the attention of your doctor, um, they should be ordering diagnostic imaging with a mammogram or an ultrasound or both and try and figure it out because even though you're right, most breast cancers uh, have no symptoms except for the clinical feel of it with a lump or that it's just seen on a mammogram, but there are absolutely women who we see whose first symptom is pain, and so you can't ignore that. I'm glad you elucidated that a little bit more. I don't think we could drive that point home enough. We're going to take a short break. And we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Nia Mae Wilson. We're talking about breast cancer awareness, and we really want to get into self-examination, when you should go for a mammogram. And I also want to talk a little bit about the team approach to treating breast cancer, especially the way it exists at Hartford HealthCare. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. This morning, 11 till noon on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And we're chatting with my guest today, Dr. Nia Mae Wilson, who is the Associate Director of the Breast Cancer Program at Hartford HealthCare. If you wish to reach Dr. Wilson, the phone number is area code 203 6945200 Naomi I wanted to get into so uh, there have been various thoughts about the usefulness of breast self-examination um in women and actually it's been an issue of self-examination in in men for testicular cancer as well is there still a benefit do you still recommend self-examination for women um to screen as a screening device for breast cancer? It's a little bit controversial. Um, self breast. We like controversy um, here, Nia <laughs> We don't shy away from controversy, so let's go no, for it. No, we do not. <laughs> so it, the reason it's controversial is because um, 
it's always been encouraged for women to do self-breast exam because you're only seeing your doctor, you know, once or twice a year at most uh, for most people, uh, or, or sometimes even fewer than that, uh, less often. But uh, the, the reason it's controversial is because uh, there was a very, very large study that was um, examining this exact question of whether or not routine self-exam, you know, doing a, a, a self-breast exam once a month, um, compared to women who were not doing any kind of self-exam and getting regular screening. Both groups were getting regular screening with mammograms. And what was found was that the women who were doing self-breast exams found an awful lot of lumps and masses that had to be uh, investigated. And the overwhelming majority of those masses were benign. There was a very statistically insignificant pickup rate for women who were examining themselves as opposed to nothing at all but just getting the regular mammograms. Um, and so the group that was doing the self-exams had undergone uh, a very large number of additional testing, ultrasounds, biopsies, procedures, you know, increased levels of anxiety and all of that, but really without benefit. And so that is why it became so controversial because it just didn't seem to actually help. That said, most of the breast surgeons and the breast um, oncologists that I work with and really across the country, you know, we still advise something called um, breast awareness. So you should have a baseline understanding of what your tissue feels like. Does that mean you have to do it exactly the same time once a month? No, not necessarily. But certainly what you should be able to um, detect is if you feel a change. So you're not hunting for lumps. This is what I tell my patients. I say don't hunt for lumps because you're going to find them. Breast tissue is lumpy. But you, know, you need to know what your tissue kind of feels like regularly. And then if something just seems different one day, that's what you're paying attention for. So it's a little bit nebulous, but um, that's, that's really what I try and advocate for my patients. Well, I certainly support that. And actually, I support it in men because I believe that it's an empowering thing to do as well in terms of someone for their own health. Um, so uh, I agree wholeheartedly with uh, your position on that. Okay, let's get to a little bit more controversy. When should a woman begin going for regular mammograms? Yep, this is also controversial, although in reality it's not really that controversial because the USPSTF, the US United Services Preventative Task Force, they have um, uh, their, their recommendations, their guidelines say to start at age 50, and you can go every other year. The vast majority of the other groups, like the American College of Radiology, uh, the NCCN, there's a lot of other groups, usually recommend starting at age 40 and going annually. Um, we, as a, a heart for healthcare and, and most of the other uh, groups in this area, as well as across the country, most of us do recommend beginning at age 40 um, and going annually. That would change if you have family history. So we usually recommend beginning screening 10 years younger than the first person in the family who is diagnosed. So if you happen to have a first or second degree family member who is diagnosed at 45, you would be starting earlier. But this is always a conversation between you and your doctor to figure out what's going to be right for you. Um, that would also change if you have a genetic condition, such as BRCA1 or BRCA2. For those patients, we usually start much earlier at the age of 25 with um, increased screening like MRI. So it, it depends on your age. It depends on your um, risk factors and your family history. I have to say that that's new information for me from the standpoint of starting 10 years 
earlier than the youngest member of the family who was diagnosed. And I think uh, it's obviously a very important point. Um, so I, I think that's that's key. The next thing I really wanted to talk about was the change in which there's an approach to breast cancer in terms of a team slash multidisciplinary approach to a patient with breast cancer. We hear all the time about a breast navigator or and the interaction between radiation therapy, chemotherapy, surgery, what happens first. And and it has changed so much really from the standpoint of who gets chemo before surgery, before radiation. So uh, I'd like you to comment on the team approach, but as well as the various approaches, because we were always thought that, well, you go in, you operate, and then you try and figure out the chemo and radiation. Can you talk a little bit about that treatment approach? Yeah, absolutely. So um, every patient that is seen at any of the Hartford Healthcare sites um, will uh, generally have their case presented at what's called a tumor board conference. And this is a conference that is attended by multiple specialties across, um, across the system. So at the individual tumor boards, we have representation from surgery, medical oncology, radiation oncology, radiology, pathology, plastic surgery, genetics, someone from clinical trials, um, as well as the nurse navigators. And what happens at these tumor board conferences is that the entire patient presentation go, is gone through from start to finish in terms of all their imaging, all their biopsies, um, their symptoms, and, you know, what, what the treatment plan is going to be. And so as a group, that, uh, that patient is, um, is, dis- is, the patient is discussed by the group, and we come up with a treatment plan that's developed by the whole team. So it's a really wonderful approach to patient care because you're never just hearing one person's opinion. You know, when you see a provider at Hartford HealthCare, you know, in reality, you're kind of seeing about 30 or 40 people behind the scenes because all the um, cases are discussed like this. And so um, it's, uh, that, that's how it all starts. And you're right, that's how we figure out um, where a patient it needs to go to first. So generally, when a patient is diagnosed with a breast cancer, they typically come to a breast surgeon first, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have surgery first because as we've gone through, um, you know, just even in this past 20 minutes, the treatment advances have gotten so much better in the past 10 to 20 years that we've learned over time that um, sometimes in certain types of cancer, and this is going back to those receptors, that sometimes women actually need chemotherapy first before any surgery is done. And that is done for a very good reason because oftentimes it will yield a better prognosis for them. And so that's where those decisions are made at the tumor board conference where we've gone through everything and figured out, okay, this person needs to actually do this first, this second, this third. Um, and it's a group decision that's being made. So it's a, it's a really important part of the, the treatment. Um, and patients should understand, again, that they're not hearing just one person's opinion when they go in. They're really hearing everybody's opinion, and um, it's just being relayed by one person. But it's, it's a group effort. It's a multidisciplinary approach, and that's really the best patient care. Nima, if there were one, will, one message to leave with our listeners uh, today, what would that be regarding breast cancer uh, in general, and Breast Cancer Awareness the month? 
So I will just say something that kind of scared me the other day that I heard um, that it really resonated with me. So every two minutes in the United States, a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer. And it's unbelievably shocking if you think about it like that. I've never met a woman who regretted getting a mammogram. I only meet women who regret not getting their mammogram. So if there's one message that I can put out there is stay on time with your mammograms. Don't be afraid to get them. If we can catch things early, they are far more treatable and far more curable. So that's really the message I want to drive home. Dr. Nehemiah Wilson, thank you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for everything you do, and thank you for that very powerful message you just delivered. I appreciate it, and so do our listeners. Thank you. Again, if you wish to reach out to Dr. Wilson and her staff and her team at Hartford HealthCare, the telephone number is area code 203-694-5200. In closing, I want to make a comment. Many of you have heard in the past week about what's going on in Haiti. And regular listeners to this program know that I have a particular linkage to Haiti since going there beginning in 2008. My work with Father Rick Frechette since 2000 earthquake. Father Rick Frechette is the Catholic priest who is also a physician from West Hartford. And he has been living there since 1987. This week, 17 people were kidnapped. These were missionaries. There were people going there to help less fortunate people and are now being held hostage. Now, we can argue about the wisdom of going there to help people and and bringing children. We, We could argue that forever. But what it does really tell us is that the problem in Haiti is this growing loss of infrastructure. Okay, this distrust of the government, threatening government authorities and leaders with death. Even now, they're threatening this prime minister with killing him and his family. When I talk about infrastructure, okay, a lot has to do with roads deteriorating and things like that, but there has been a loss of faith in security, police, fire and health. I believe that many of the problems that have occurred in Haiti has been the fact that they have not had access to good health. And again, has added to the deterioration and lawlessness that's going on in that country right now. Much of it began with conspiracies and coups and things of this nature. I also believe that it's a cautionary tale for those of us in this country that we need to back our system. We need to take care of each other rather than relying so much on government to take care of you. Begin to look out for each other. That's the only way that a society survives. And it begins with looking after your health and the health of each other. Many thanks to our studio producer, Anthony Dorenzo. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. If you missed any part of today's program, you can get the Healthy Rounds podcast. You can download it at odyssey.com. Next up on WTIC is going to be Law Talk with John Matulis.
Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.